0: Ken Boyd, how you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Awesome. Thanks for coming out, man. Appreciate it. So I met you uh, a little while back, doing uh, your CPL training. Um, yep. For I uh, did that over the summer, but I will talk about that in a second. But I want to get to know you a little bit. I want to. You, you're still currently in the military, correct? Yeah. Or, okay. And um, I want to. I want to ask you a couple questions about the military before we get started into uh, talking about Brimstone, your company. Mm-hmm. Um, but what um i just i kind of want to get to know you a little bit and we'll go through a couple questions so what so you kind of you're born in the new mexico area correct yeah albuquerque yeah. albuquerque new mexico a lot of uh, the metropolis of albuquerque <laughs> <laughs> well as far as the rest of the new mexico goes yes it is. it's a huge It is the the center of all things New Mexico. But um, so and then you uh, through what at what point did you know that you wanted to join the military? What point did you make that decision?
1: Um, I've I've always um, felt led to be a be a soldier and from as long as I can remember. I, I know there's one time where my brother wanted to be a space shuttle pilot and he wasn't, and mom was like, oh, you can be rich and you can help support me. He goes, no, I'm going to keep my money all yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and then she she asked me, what do you want to be? So I want to be a cop. Well, why do you want to be a cop? So I can arrest my brother for not supporting you. <laughs> so yeah, I've always, yeah, I've always played guns, you know, in the, in the woods uh, with my friends and did a lot of other stuff. And for as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a soldier. So um, as long as you keep your nose out of trouble, you can and work a little bit hard, at least. Um, you can actually, you don't even work hard anymore. Just,
0: <laughs> it's pretty easy to get in. So yeah, they yeah. lowered the standards a little bit. Shout out to Bo, my brother-in-law's and, uh, he's a uh, national guard and, uh, he, he tells me about how hard he works and, how hard he works <laughs> i give him <laughs> well, crap for the, it but.
2: the big
1: news in the military is for the army is they just said that uh basic trainees are not
0: required to pass a physical fitness test what? to graduate basic training for another year oh so there is that a covid related policy then or i don't think so okay um back when i went in you had to earn you
1: know the old physical fitness test, you had to earn 60 out of 100 points in three different events. But to graduate basic training, you only had to earn 50. Uh-huh. Um, and so they've, for a long time, they've never had the full standards of the rest of the Army. And that's understandable. You sure. just get in after a couple of months and you get to get trained up, but... Honestly, uh, I I joined 1990. 1990, and uh, I was actually in much better shape going into basic training than leaving. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So my senior year in high school, I was uh, I did my third year of water polo, and we were on a state champion team. Okay. And I was in a I wasn't good, but all the rest of my team was. Okay. And then uh, swim team, we were state runners up, and then I decided to do track and field that year. Okay. And so when I went to basic training I was like you're yay! probably jacked. I and, was I was the only skinny guy that lost <laughs> that lost weight in basic
0: training. So oh, that's funny. But um so you so 1990 you you did you enlist as active duty then or Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you went active. Um, and then what, so a uh, 30 year career in the military, that's, that's pretty impressive. What has been your, what What have been some like highlight experiences through throughout your, your career in the nineties? What's something that you would hang your hat on? What's what, I guess, what's your rank? Cause I I'm dumb with the military. Like, I okay. don't know, just say what, where you're at with that right now.
1: So I'm enlisted, okay. which means I'm a non-commissioned officer and there's nine pay grades. Okay. And I'm on the eighth, the second to highest pay
0: grade. E eight is that what they E8, call it? Okay. Yes. And yep.
1: so, and I'm in a command position. So he's either a master sergeant or a first sergeant, and a first sergeant is in charge of a
0: company. Okay. And so I have a forward support company that I'm in charge of. Okay. So you're first sergeant. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so impressed. I I, t- I was telling somebody yeah. I was having a military guy on today, and he asked like, "What were I think I was like, a, he's a f- he's and I said it confidently. I was like, he's a first sergeant because He's not going to fact check me. I didn't know. <laughs> but I got it right. Cool. Uh, so did you, uh, so did you see any, uh, uh, did you do any tours overseas to Iraq or Afghanistan or did you see any? Um...
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned, mention that I've, I have two, I have three tours in, of combat. Okay. Um, all of them were in Iraq. Okay. So, but you said something that would, you know, one of the highlights of my career. Um, I have a very different career outlook than almost everybody in the military. Okay. In okay. I went to basic training, and the world was at peace. About halfway through basic training, Desert Shield kicked off. Okay. And so I went to I went to basic training in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and then I went to Fort Gordon for advanced individual training. And so I was there for three months, and then they kept me there for an additional skills school. So I was what they call MOS qualified. And as I was going through that school is when Desert Shield turned into Desert Storm. Okay. So after the day after that happened, I get, you know, me and my classmates, we get called into the, uh, the first sergeant's office and he said, you're getting, you're getting graduated a week and a half early and you're getting ordered for Desert Storm. No kidding. I'm like, okay. Well, wow! Fresh off,
0: fresh off the turnip truck, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> shipping <laughs> off. Of Iraq. So
1: yeah, so I I got
0: assigned to
1: or attached to First Infantry Division, Second Battalion, Sixteenth Infantry Regiment, as a radio operator. So I was in a headquarters company of an infantry battalion, and uh, I was in. Combat. Yep. I mean, it wasn't like active combat, but, you know, I mean, the first night I was in country, I saw a Scud get shot out of the sky right in front of me. Oh, wow. And, you know, I saw all the artillery going off. Um, We had mines. uh, We went through minefields, all that stuff. But for three months, I was over there. And when it was all said and done, I was detached from that unit. And I literally went, I reported to my first duty station already as a combat veteran. Wow. Interesting. So, yeah, and then all my NCOs and officers and in, enlisted in, in are in front of me. Um, they did not go. Okay. And so, actually,
0: uh, quite there was a few of them that were a little bit jealous. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I know because uh, one one of my best friends in the world, Joe. Um, he got in a, in a really odd situation where he he uh, in he went to ROTC at uh, Marquette University mm-hmm. for a few years, and for whatever reason, something happened with that program that he didn't finish that program, and he ended up enlisting as a poolie, and then um, he just bounced back and forth between Okinawa and um, Hawaii for six years, and they Marine Corps, and, yeah, Marine okay. Corps, and he kept want, like he wanted to to be shipped out. Um, but for whatever reason, they never sent his platoon. I, I don't know if that's common or not, but it sounds like you got the accelerated path. <laughs> he, he got the well, it was one, one of like 400 uh, replacements
1: to ever go over there. And there were more people waves up after us. that were never got to go ahead. Yep. And out of all the soldiers that were there, um, it was a mon- in desert storm. They were a minority in the army. Mm-hmm. And so after global war on terror, when you had like, 10, 12 years of deployments and stuff. And you get a, an officer or a high ranking NCO that had not been deployed, soldiers would say, Well, that, that guy never deployed. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And that, that's highly unfair. Yeah. I was a private first class when I got to my first duty station and I got to see amazingly professional NCOs that they would have loved to have gone to combat. Anybody that loves to go to combat has not been to combat. Let's, yeah. let's first just say yeah. that right there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I see all these guys that, you know, they have multiple deployments. And then I see other people that have just never had a chance to deploy. Yeah. And they judge people
0: who haven't deployed. I'm like... A lot of that's not in their control.
1: It's it's not under their control. It's And you can volunteer for deployments, but not always. Yeah. Um, and... I have guys that didn't get a chance to get deployed or their deployments got nixed. And I deployed with guys who are complete knuckleheads, Mm -hmm. guys that turned out to be cowards. Mm -hmm. And so just to say that somebody is a good soldier because they deployed is not a a very good measure. It's just
0: luck of the draw. And, you know, to to say that the United States is a good judge of character, like, as a whole, like the United States government is a good judge of character as who's going to be... Good and good in stressful situations and and they get a lot of that right, but it's the government they're not they're not going to get that right a hundred percent of the time <laughs> so well
1: but, like in basic training they they do try and institute uh put you in stressful situations to see if you can handle it and not. Um, The problem is that the United States Army, as opposed to the Marine Corps, is a big numbers game. And so Mm -hmm. the officers tend to push guys, even to fail the stressful situation, push them through because they've got to get so many bodies through. Fair enough. And the Marine Corps, um, they're like a tenth the size of the Army, and they have had twice the size of the budget for recruiting and they can be much more selective and in doing so they're a much better force. Gotcha. average.
0: Yeah. Well, and I I've read a couple books about the the Navy Seals and uh their their officers would get in trouble if they don't fail x amount of people from from what I've been told anyway. Um maybe that's some lore.
1: <laughs> yeah. It it really depends cuz there's a time when they were growing the special operations community and so they had to accept more people. You know, like Special Forces, they had to, they came up with this 18X contract where guys right off the street could sign up to go Special Forces. And a lot of the old guard did not like that. I believe it. Ended up being kind of kind of shooting themselves in the foot because they got a lot of guys in that weren't the mature type of, because Special Forces isn't, they're, they're not the, they're not Rangers. You know what I mean by Rangers, by yep. 75th Ranger Regiment. Yep. Um, these guys, the Special Forces are, they're the educated guys. They're the teachers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my cousin. My cousin actually was a ranger um, in Desert Storm, I believe, back in the back in the nineties. Um, ranger was he in the seventy fifth Ranger Regiment in Desert Storm? I don't know. I, he was okay. he was an Army Ranger that was in something overseas. <laughs> like right. Right. my my military knowledge just, just is not li- the best. Just for but, the listeners, yeah. um,
1: you can go to Ranger School, mm-hmm. and Ranger School is not a part
0: of 75th ranger regiment okay what what is the 75th ranger regiment specifically
1: right now the 75th ranger regiment is the the premier strike force for the nation okay and what i mean by that is if you ever see the movie black hawk down it's a really good movie Mm -hmm. and what it is is delta force guys goes into these buildings and they go in there and they go get the high value target and the large force that had to secure that whole area, those guys were the Rangers. Gotcha. Uh, now, things have progressed, and now that Rangers are doing uh, high value targets, just like Delta Force is. But unlike Delta Force, Rangers can do a battalion level operation, they can seize a whole airfield, not just a building. And that's something the Rangers can do where no other special operations unit can. They can operate, a, go from squad level all the way to battalion level. Sure. That's cool. So those guys are good, but you, get, and you got Ranger School, and Ranger School is a leadership school. Okay. It's, anybody can go to Ranger School. It's kind of hard to get to unless you're like an infantry officer, all that stuff. Um, now, I was long range surveillance for a long time. For like 12, yeah, 12 years. And what long-range surveillance did is you would get six guys on a team, and they would go behind enemy lines, and they would spy on people. And if you guys know anything about the Vietnam War, those were called long-range reconnaissance patrols. Okay. And then they became ranger companies. And then Not Ranger, true. and then after the Vietnam War, they stood up the Ranger Regiment, and then the the long ranger, the LURPS guys. Those guys got disbanded. Then in 1985, they started them up again, called them Long Range Surveillance. Yeah. And that's what I did. So the the LURPS com- the Lers companies have a Ranger lineage, and um, but it's different than the 75th Rangers. Now the 75th Rangers, to get any leadership position, you have to be Ranger School qualified. Okay, and in lurs units, you're to get any ranger, uh, any leadership position, you had to be ranger school qualified, um, unless you're in the National Guard, because National Guard it's hard to get the ranger school slots, um, and so sometimes you didn't get it. Now I did attend ranger school, and in full uh, disclosure, I did not complete ranger school. I um, mean that's another story. Kind okay, of, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, sure. But I I did that as a National Guard soldier, and I was able to do that because of long-range surveillance. So, and Ranger School is a leadership school. And once you graduate, you carry that Ranger tab wherever you go, and you get to call yourself a Ranger. And on your little MOS code, on your job skills, you have what they call a Victor uh, identifier, which means you are Ranger qualified. Okay. Okay. But that doesn't mean you were ever part of 75th Ranger Regiment. 75th Ranger Regiment, my brother was 75th for five years. Okay. And what they always said was the scroll or the unit patch, 75th Rangers, the scroll
0: is a way of life. The tab is a school. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, so moving on from that, one more question I want to ask you regarding the military. So I've heard... A lot of stories, um, and this is one, this is probably like my first like major life event that happened in the, or world event that happened that I remember is 9-11. So you're in the military in 9-11. What, what was it like being in the military? Where were you? What what did, what changed kind of for you at that point in time?
1: So I got off of active duty in 1999, or, uh, 1998. Okay. And I was working for a phone company, and I was in the National Guard, and I went from long-range surveillance active duty on a, as a communications sergeant to long-range surveillance infantry sergeant on one of the teams. And uh, so when 9-11 hit, um, I was asleep because I was working nights. Okay. And my girlfriend called me up, and she goes, there four four airplanes. We just, just crashed into some buildings, and I don't know what's going on, and so... You know just waking up from a deep sleep i'm like okay and i just i told her well four airplanes i'm not i hate to tell you this but we've been attacked it's yeah. not a random thing for sure and just turn your news off and then because they're, they're not going to know anything for another day or two or mm-hmm. anything else just just relax the nation's not going anywhere right? and I'll call you when I get to work. So I went back to sleep because mm-hmm. I knew there's nothing for besides. sure.
0: It's so much speculation yeah. and just craziness.
1: Right. So when I get to work, um, knowing that my nation had been attacked, uh, the need for me to go back active duty was so strong. I could literally taste it in my mouth. Yeah to get back into that fight to find out who who violated our security you know what i mean mm-hmm. um, and i was sitting there and i go to and i'm, I'm a network uh, surveillance technician so local uh, exchange company in michigan but we had a switch in rochester new york and a switch in scranton pennsylvania And I go there and I look and I said, "There's a there's an alarm that nobody's uh, written in the book about this alarm." So, I call the Rochester uh, company and and then uh, they tell me I look it up and I wanted to find out who the fiber was running through and so we could find out what's going on with this thing. And so the fiber company said, "Yeah, there's nothing we can do about it." Well, what do you mean? Because if the other side of the fiber goes down, we're going to lose customers. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And um. So what they said is, well, the building is on fire. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, I assume the uh, police, the uh, fire department's called and said, I'm pretty sure they have because it was building seven of the World Trade Center.
0: Oh, so interesting.
1: I had to take a minute there and absorb that information because mm-hmm. then it's not just that building being attacked affected the infrastructure of the entire East coast building seven building seven uh the world trade center it was it wasn't just a hub of commerce Uh it was a hub of telecommunications okay and so that's when you realize holy crap this is big
0: yes very, very organized and done for a specific purpose. Wow, yeah, that's that's interesting. What are, What are your thoughts on on Tower Seven? Because that's that is a weird one. I have not been able to wrap my head around it. I have some preconceived notions, but that's <laughs> that's about it. Before we get into Alex Jones' world,
1: <laughs> but well, anybody that looks at a building and thinks they know how a building is constructed um, needs to really take a backseat on that. Because yeah, my fiber was going through there and it was cut. That doesn't give me an, an expert into that. However, I do know that the building was on fire well before it collapsed. Mm-hmm. And so what people don't understand is building seven, the first two floors was all one big giant power station. Okay. And when that happens is, you ever seen the, the movie 9-11? I actually
0: haven't seen that movie. September,
1: September 11th, it was where the police officers had survived, and they survived by getting into the elevator shaft, which is the core of the building. Yep. Well, everybody thinks a building has a core, and that's true. Except for the rare instances of buildings like building seven, which had a big power station, the first two things. So in that case, the four pillars, the four corners were the foundation of the building. Gotcha. Not
0: the core. And so there was a fire in the core and it kind of caved in on itself. Yeah. And that that changes
1: everything. So anybody who says, well, I know a thing or two about buildings. Yeah. But there's
0: exceptions to every rule. Sure. Yeah. I know uh, some civil engineers that have pontificated on that one, um, but that's that's really good. That's really good information because you, you know, there are two two planes that got there are two towers that got hit by a plane, and mm-hmm. then there's an entire building that collapses. That's is it? I, I guess I don't know the geographics of that location very specifically, but it's not that close to the two towers, is it? Or yeah, it is it right very close? Door. Oh, it's right next door. Okay, yep. so um, yeah, that's a lot more plausible than you know the conspiracies <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so but no it's interesting okay um so moving on a little bit from that um the and i'll kind of get into how we met so um back when all of the uh all the craziness happened in grand rapids back in uh back at the end of may um <laughs> you know i've always been a, a pretty conservative guy pretty pro second amendment i would say um, but never personally owned a firearm. I have a shotgun. It, it sits in my parents' house. Like, I, I never use it. Um, and so I, I made a personal decision to purchase firearm after all that. We, we live in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I just felt that, you know, if, you know, and, and at that time we, we had no idea how this thing was going to escalate because yeah. it, it, at that point in time it seemed like it was out of control. And I just I made a decision. I was like, you know, this is, this is something I, I have to do to protect protect my family. And that's kind of how we met, is because I I, uh, I enrolled in a uh, in an education class, uh, concealed pistol license. Yep. And uh, you own the company, Brimstone Firearms.
1: Yep. Brimstone that, firearm instruction.
0: Brimstone firearm instruction. Yeah. And uh, and you. I'm sorry.
1: I, I'm not trying to plug it. Um, but I named well, it. I am, please, so it's please okay. do. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but. The, it's my philosophy. So Brimstone is the name of dog I, I used to have. Best dog I've ever had, but he's also really smart and in the defensive situations he was he would get in, he was smart enough to actually de escalate the situation. And that's why I try and tell these people. But I only I acknowledge that there's firearms, but there's also self-defense classes. You can carry flashlights that are defensive. There, you can do mm-hmm. knives. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can. Um, and I, I personally tell people, hey, if you're feeling insecure about the neighborhood you live in, don't don't get a gun. Get a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get a dog. So <laughs> yeah. Much, yeah, it's so for sure. much more secure. And dogs, really, by instinctual... Um, are so more in tune to the world around than a human being is, mm-hmm. and they can actually do or be a really good job of job of uh, judging character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing what dogs can do, even when they're not trained. So it's brimstone and there's firearm, and then there's instruction. I teach the classes, and I give my students the tools to go home and continue training, because you take a one day class, it's it's not enough.
0: No. It's definitely not. It's not enough. <laughs> no. Now, while I feel like I learned a lot during your class, um, you, you do offer more than just a standard CPL class, the eight-hour minimum that's required by the state to get your license. What, I never do the minimum.
2: <laughs> as, as you true. know,
0: you did it. Yeah, yes. It was a 12-hour long yes. class. Yes, it was. It was yeah. Hottest day of the year, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember, I because I, uh, I, I went and I bought the, the Smith & Wesson Shield, yep. which is a little bit slimmer, and one of the things that i don't know if it was you or somebody mentioned it to me is like make make sure your hands are dry when you're firing it because you're gonna have a hard time hanging on to that sucker (laughs) if your hands are sweaty yeah and oh boy 90 degrees and uh uh, black metal heating up it was uh yeah Yeah. that was fun but anyway (laughs) side note on that so uh what what else do you do with brimstone outside of the the state minimum requirement to get a cpl class
1: uh, the state minimum is eight hours, three hours on the range, and then you have the legal briefing, too. Um, in my classes, usually 10 that last at least over 10 hours because I, I slow it down. I don't want to just ram it down. I want people to absorb it, especially, you know, it just it's not just the defensive marksmanship in the ranges, but the, the awareness that you teach. Uh, I want people to soak it in. And then once they graduate my CPL class, any one of my students, because I know that they're functionally literate with firearms and they're relatively safe, if they want to take one of my my advanced CPL class, I give all my students a 50% discount, trying to get them to encourage them to come out and do the advanced CPL class. It's yep. my personal feeling that anybody carrying concealed should have already graduated the advanced CPL class, because mm-hmm. uh, the, the, most people don't realize this, but... The two most dangerous things you can do with a loaded firearm is draw from concealment and Mm reholster. And those are the two things you don't have time in a basic CPL class to do. But in the advanced CPL class, you take my class, you're going to master it. Okay. So you do that. I also I'm coming up with. Uh, I do private lessons. I can do tree teach uh, basic rifle marksmanship. I can teach uh, carbine. I can teach weapons maintenance. And then in by January is my deadline to actually have a curriculum up for a home defense carbine class. Oh,
0: okay, excellent. So
1: and what it is is. You know the AR-15 is the most popular weapon out there, and there's a couple of others that are similar to it. And it's a carbine, and I, I, don't, I don't want people to think of, oh, it's a military-grade weapon. A carbine is actually a low, lower-powered rifle. Yep. So it's it's not a high-power thing. And this this one is basically is how to use that carbine to for home defense specifically. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So for your CPL class, um, you you charge a hundred dollars, I believe. Is
1: yes, but I give lots of discounts. Okay, sounds good.
0: <laughs> so uh, by the way, a hundred dollars, and and I did shop around, and that's that's one of the most reasonable prices out there. I from what I've seen personally.
1: It, it is it's it's run it's almost average, but when you go to silver Bullet or barrack six one six um they have much nicer facilities and they sure. have in the insurance and all that, so then you're gonna get up to a hundred and seventy five and yeah. two hundred dollars, but at the end of the day those instructors are coming home with the same money out of the pocket uh,
0: in their pocket that i do got they just have more overhead basically yeah. with their process so well yeah, and that's and that's great and the the best the thing that I liked um about what you did is that I felt, um, cause you could probably like what the state mandates you train is probably is all the legal jargon, right? Which you did obviously, yeah. but I felt like you got a lot more into the why, um, you know, uh, we we talked about some Second Amendment stuff and yeah. why that's all important. Um, but before we get into that, just in general, um, I have a little bit of a theme going that I want to keep keep going on this podcast um, with people who are self employed. I think I yeah. think anytime it, it really excites me to talk to people who own their own businesses. My dad was a small business owner. Um, I've mm-hmm. owned a couple small businesses, and um, and so w- what. At, when did you start Brimstone and what is it like for you being self-employed in that world?
1: Ooh, It's pretty tough because, so me, I'm a, I'm a federal technician full-time. So you know that I'm in the National Guard, yes. which is a weekend thing. Yep. Um, but I actually work for the National Guard as a civilian and I'm what they call dual status. I'm a technician. And in order for me, it's a federal job, but mm. I only work for the state of Michigan. Okay. And so the adjutant general of Michigan is my boss. Even though my money comes from the federal government, and so I have to be in the national Guard mm-hmm. so i've been in the national Guard for thirty one years and if the National Guard decides hey it's time for you to tap out, move over, and let somebody else take over, uh, then i'm going to lose my civilian job, yep, and I've got another eight years to go before I can retire from that one okay so I'm looking at well, what am I going to do when I retire and I want something to land on and my first thought was dogs because yeah. I really love dogs, yeah. and uh, and I could train dogs, but I have a hard time training people to train their own dogs because yeah. people have these misconceptions about how how to treat dogs. They like you know as their family member, all that stuff, and and I find a hard time. But I found through the military, being an NCO training soldiers, I really enjoy training uh, people, and I happen to be a pretty good shot, so as i just took that and i'm like i can teach firearms and so i started that uh 4 years ago. Okay,
0: awesome. So relatively new. Yeah. Okay. Um so this is it's not your full-time gig, but it, potentially someday it will be. Potentially someday it will. Right now it is literally my third job.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> and i have a full-time job and then i have another almost full-time job with the national guard being a first sergeant cuz uh, there's let some me paperwork you,
0: hey, that comes with that, I bet.
1: There's paperwork. There's leadership seminars. There's I'm doing a 37 day annual training, not not 14 days like they used to. It's 37 days, and I'm doing five day drills, four day drills, and sometimes two drills a month. Hmm. So, and as a first sergeant, you have your time to plan your your training plans, your conferences, unit training meetings, all that stuff takes in in addition to that.
0: So you 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 just said something interesting that I want to touch on, ask you a question. So um leadership training in the military, is that very military specific or do you think that there're things that are taught in military leadership training that could benefit people outside the military?
1: Oh, sure, leadership is leadership. Mm. Uh in the military, you know, we tend to maybe curse a lot more <laughs> <laughs> <I> Love <it. laughs> and maybe you tend to yell at people a lot more. Yep. And, and what I find is you're not trying to just yell at somebody, like abuse them and be like a bully. There are times in, ours, in our lives that are more common than in the civilian where we need soldiers to make snap decisions to get up and move because it's a life-threatening situation mm-hmm. or they just need to be motivated and you have to have that freedom to do that. But if in the National Guard or in the military, if you do that too often, then they're not going to listen to you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You've got to figure out a way, and the military defines leadership as Providing purpose, motivation, and direction to the uh, to influence others to the accomplishment of goals. So you just can't yell at them. That's just pure abuse. Yeah. Anybody in the leadership in the army knows that. And everybody looks to movies like everything is basic training and you get yelled at. It's not no. that yeah. at all. Yeah. It, you've you've got to lead. Yeah. You know, We Were Soldiers is a wonderful uh, movie and book about leadership. Mm-hmm. You have to lead by example, just like you can if you're a lineman or you're digging ditches. And you've got to mo- motivate them and you've got to give them a sense of purpose.
0: Absolutely. Leadership is spelled E X A M P L E. So, brimstonefirearms.com, I believe, is where is That's that your the website? website yeah. Okay. And then, how can you be reached via email? Uh, easy. Brimstonefirearms at gmail.com. Okay. So brimstonefirearms.com, brimstonefirearms at gmail.com yep. for emails, inquiries, all that good stuff. So make sure we give you a good, good, solid plug because that's what a professional would do, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Joe, do you have anything to add in here? I, can, I see you lean forward every now and again, and I have a habit of cutting you off. Did, did you have I'm, anything I'm just you wanted intrigued.
3: to add So to to give you some perspective on where I'm at with firearms, uh, I enjoy shooting and I've never really I've never been in a hunting family or anything like that, but my, my dad owns a bunch of rifles, hunting rifles from his dad. And I'm at the point where I've already decided my, gra- my graduation present to myself is going to be a firearm and a concealed carry training certification and subsequent training. I, th- I think what you said earlier about how you urge your students to go immediately into an advanced training session Everything well, not, that I... not immediately but it's I
1: call my my CPL class a beginner CPL class mm-hmm. that's what launches you and it gives you the tools to go home and then when people once they graduate my class I give them an email with some various, various videos giving them an example of how to do dry fire exercises mm-hmm. and not just go to the range for enjoyment but how can you make yourself better? Where can you get to take that next step? Gotcha. And then once you get comfortable enough, uh, I also tell people if they're good enough to go to the advanced CPL class or
3: what they need to go to get there to the CPL class. Okay. More to my point of understanding that there's more than – that That basic class is, is more of a legal requirement than uh, what the, the amount of training that you need to properly – be prepared for a situation where you might draw your gun.
1: It's it's what
3: the state
1: says is the bare minimum. Yeah. Now I believe that your life is a lot worth a lot more than the bare minimum.
3: Yes, I agree. <laughs>
1: it's like driving around with PLPD on your insurance. Mm-hmm. Then you, when you get an accident, it's your
3: fault. You're screwed. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know where I was going with this, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting to hear your perspective on this and and your background specifically, um, because I'm I'm at the point where I'm I'm looking at. Why do I want to carry a firearm? Like, why is that something that that's important to me, and why now?
1: Okay, so and it's pretty easy. So, well, first off, I want to commend you for your choice of timing. If 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 you were not a college student, um, I would say go get your CPL now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also you, security is, comes away comes in many forms. Mm-hmm. So, as a college student, if you're going to go and get a CPL right now as opposed to later when you have less bills, then you're going to put yourself in financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to risk your financial financial insecurity just for some physical security. You yeah. got to balance them out. So I commend you on that. Um, but one good reason why, uh, let, let me tell you the, the, one of my stories is I often get asked, have you ever used a pistol in self-defense? And my answer is yes and no. <laughs> mm. Nice clear and cut, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we were house hunting uh, uh, quite a few years back, and I just started carrying concealed, and uh, so I had uh, I had my pistol with me, and the last house on the day. I go out to the backyard. Well, my wife and the real estate agent, they're in the kitchen doing you know, the, the wife things and stuff. Not to be mm-hmm. stereotypical, but she's the cook and the family. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to the backyard. Not the basement, not the garage. That's who I am. i go to the backyard. Yeah. And when I get on the backyard, you have uh, two houses, right and left. One is on the left, had a really tall chain link fence, two pit bulls in the backyard barking up a storm. Mm-hmm. Um, but their their owner was home. He yelled a command. They were silent. So that tells me number one, there is a barrier between me, and two, they are trained, no threat. Yeah. But on the the way to the right, there is an empty lot with some trees, and then through the trees, I see a, a normal sized fence with two dogs. One's a German, one's a German Shepherd. The other one's a Golden Retriever. Mm-hmm. And they hear the barking. They decided to go see what's going on. They run up to the fence. The golden retriever stops. The German shepherd jumps the fence, not even breaking stride, and he's running. So that tells me he's done that before. Yeah. Now, I know a little bit about dogs. I know a lot more than the average person. But um, I also know that German shepherds have the strongest bite of any dog breed in the world. And Mm. at this point, if this dog wants to attack me, there's nothing I can do. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm completely defenseless, but I have a pistol on me. So as his dog is running towards me, um, one of the things I teach is setting action limits and developing a plan with your levels of awareness. And at this point, I'm aware that there's a potential threat. He's Mm -hmm. not a guaranteed threat. So I come up with a plan really quick is I put my hand on my firearm, but I don't draw it. Mm -hmm. because if I, I don't know if he's a a threat and if I pull a pistol and I aim it at him, I am now aiming something that is lethal Mm -hmm. at that dog. That dog can pick up on that and it will give him a reason to attack me. I don't want to escalate the situation. Mm -hmm. So I get down in a good dog reading stance and I I stick my left arm out and I realize that if he's going to attack me, my left arm is going to get chewed up first and I'm right-handed, so I can, <laughs> I can yeah. survive that. Um, but if he attacks that arm, then I can draw my pistol and shoot in point-blank range. Mm-hmm. So that allows me to have, I'm going to survive. Mm-hmm. That allows me a reason that I don't have to be afraid unnecessarily. Um, so if I did not have my firearm with me, I would have been very, very afraid. Mm-hmm. Guarantee it, <laughs> Because I didn't know what the dog was doing. And I also know if I'm afraid, that can make the dog more aggressive. They can be dominant. So that can give that dog a a reason to attack me. So I had to thread that needle between being a threat to the dog or being afraid. Mm -hmm. And so that firearm, just my possession of that firearm allowed me to navigate that situation. And so at the very last minute, the dog turned and went up to the pit bulls. But if you know anything, some people are out there, like well, saying, "Well, maybe there was never a threat." You're right. Maybe there wasn't. But I guarantee you that I I did not give that dog a reason to attack me mm-hmm. or that act towards dominance because mm-hmm. I had that firearm with me and I used it correctly mm-hmm. and it stayed in the holster.
3: That's awesome. Great story. That is that is a really cool story, yeah. and I think so. I guess to kind of. Uh, Jump off of that and and back to what I was getting at originally, um, it was interesting for me to make a mental switch in my head of I like shooting guns. It's a lot of fun versus I think I might want to carry one yeah. because the 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 thing that I had to accept uh, Justin and I have a friend who had to draw on his neighbor. And he he told me the whole story of all the legal stuff that happened before he didn't end up mm-hmm. shooting the guy, but it it was still a a legal mess. Um, and I had to like come to terms with that in my head and and realize if I'm going to carry a firearm, I need to be willing to use it if necessary. Yes. And that. And that that shouldn't.
1: If if somebody feels that that is an easy question, they're wrong. Yeah. Just flat out, they're setting themselves up for an emotional a uh, roller coaster of which they have no idea what they're coming for. Mm-hmm. And I say that because as a combat veteran from Desert Storm, I go off into Iraqi Freedom 1 and Iraqi Freedom 2, and I come back from those deployments, active combat situations, and some of the guys I went over there were with did the exact same thing I did, and they came back and they're suffering from PTSD, and I didn't. Hmm. And one of the reasons why, as I knew, being a prior uh, combat combat vet, even though I didn't shoot anybody or get shot at, Mm -hmm. Um, I also have a deep faith in Jesus Christ. So there's a higher power behind that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also knew to ask myself, can I take a human life? And in that sad situation, you know, if I have to, it's honestly, it's not my choice. If you're attacking me, Mm -hmm. it's your choice to attack me and I'll act in Mm self-defense or the self-defense of my convoy.
3: Yeah. And I think it, it really comes down to do you care about something enough whether it's yourself selfishly or family or friends or even people in general mm-hmm. do you care enough that you can make that choice if necessary to protect someone else or yourself
1: There was one of our in, uh, fellow instructors that actually had a student that was saying that I'm never going to use my my pistol to defend somebody else hmm. And so the instructor said well you know what sometimes karma's not yeah. very kind to you, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there are a lot more legal ramifications, it's in legal legal entanglements if you try and defend somebody else. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot harder. Yep. But at the same time, is if you really want to think about just defending yourself, then you got to think a little bit ahead of the game. Me, I want to protect my community. Mm-hmm. If you want to just protect yourself, you need to pull your head out of your fourth point of contact. And this is what I mean by that: <laughs> defense in layers. If you're only willing to protect your house, then the neighbors aren't going to protect your house. Mm. If I'm willing to protect me and my neighbors, they're willing to protect me. I now have defense and layers.
0: Mm. Mm. That's a good point.
1: So, yeah, and that's one of the things that stops the, the big heavy offenses and warfare is, is defense and depth. You've got to get through my community. You've got to get through my neighborhood. Then you've got to get through my dog. Then you've got to get through me. Then you can get to my family. And they're not easy to handle anyways. <laughs>
0: That's right. awesome. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so we talked a little bit about military and then about Brimstone. Um, so, I want to get into your philosophy on the Second Amendment. Why is why is the why is the Second Amendment so important? Um, you know, back in 1776 or whenever the Constitution was drafted. I don't know the exact year. Was it 70, 70, 1770?
1: No, 1776 is the year we declared our independence. Yeah. Independence. 1783 is the con- is the the constitution and the bill of rights was a few years after
0: that okay excellent um you know what'd be great i just thought of this maybe a few months down the road if you enjoyed this enough to come back maybe we could do like a entire segment on u.s history i I feel like that would be super interesting for me that That would be awesome okay so we'll we'll put that on the schedule for maybe 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 after the first year
1: a little bit of my my yeah, I went to public school, even though my family homeschools right now. I went to public school, and my senior year, instead of just doing the government class, I got I finagled my way into American political thought, which is honors government, and I was not an honors student. <laughs> <laughs> but I got into there, and part of that was it was honors government, but we were— taught the constitution, Hmm. not just the constitution, but during that year, the reason why I knew it was, it was took five years to create the constitution is because when I was going to high school, we had this national competition that we participated in on the constitution Hmm. and we took state and we went to nationals. And one of the things you did there is you had a debate. It was a simulated Senate hearing based on the Constitution. And my specialty for my leadership was the federalism of the US Constitution. Hmm. So I was, I was educated a li- little bit more liberally on the constitution than your average public school Excellent.
0: student. Yeah. That's, oh my gosh, that's something that I need. Cause I'm a big, f- so my background is all through high school. I didn't give a crap. Like I did not <laughs> care. Like I didn't care about school, us history. I wanted to drink beer and play sports. That was basically <laughs> all my brain was capable of doing <laughs> up until about, well, about until I got engaged. Actually, I think that's when I started to <laughs> turn things around but um but since then i've been I've been much more interested in things like that and it's and I feel like it's it's difficult sometimes to separate um the history mm-hmm. itself from people's opinions about history and I feel like a lot of um history that's taught in school is diluted and maybe cherry picked and... diluted
1: canned uh mass produced uh things like that and you know me being in the military uh i've vehemently disagree with way the US army teaches marksmanship. Okay. Now you read the manual on marksmanship and how you're supposed to do it, it is really squared away. The units don't do that though. They should be more like the Marine Corps which is actually a much more holistic um doctrine, not indoctrination, but you know, it, it's a lot more in-depth with the Marine Corps. The Army wants to get everybody through as fast as possible, and that's what public school has become, and I'm not going to blame the public school for that. I'm going to blame society. Sure. And actually, the parents want the, the schools to pass their kids, even when their kids are failing, and that's, that's the problem of the parents, not the teachers. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the things I have going for me is that I have Asperger's Syndrome, so, and I have a, a really high IQ, but I don't want to drink beer and hang out with guys sometimes. So when I get caught up into a subject, I can get fully involved into that. And thankfully, 13 years of therapy, I I can tone it down a bit and make it a little bit more relatable. Mm -hmm. So, and I love history. And uh, one of the things I disagree with the entire world about is this idea of a gun culture.
2: Okay.
1: Mm. I'm a big second amendment guy and there's no gun culture. No, there is no gun culture. And follow me on this, guys. Yep. It's a freedom culture. Mm. Okay. So you got like three different groups of these of these gun guys, and you got and then you got some that like they're the America, and we just love guns because we're Americans. So you got the fuds, which are the old hunting guys, yep. and you know what the mm-hmm. hunting guys they just want to have the freedom to go out and hunt. Sure. Mm-hmm. The freedom. Yep. Then you got the tactical guys who want the freedom to buy everything they want, so that they can look cool to their soft buddies. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of those guys yeah. going around, and then there's the guys that want to be uh, very self protective or the preppers and in or just self reliant, and that's good too. One of the th- and any of the other guys that just I don't care, I don't want to live my life. Mm-hmm. All of these people that's just the want to live their life yeah. the way yeah. they want to do it. And so when the Constitution was born, it was born out of warfare, and it was born out of the warfare for freedom, and the freedom is is just. They wanted to worship the way they wanted to worship, not the way the king thought. They wanted to have their own job. They wanted to, um, they didn't want to follow the old cultural norm of, you know, you had to follow in your father's footsteps and people wanted to have a say in government and in a monarchy, Mm -hmm. you don't have that. Right. And what people fail to realize, we had, we had two advantages. Okay. In that war, one. And oh, there's a couple more advantages. Like number one is uh, England was fighting over other wars everywhere. So they couldn't throw their full weight behind us. Sure. Um, but they were the, pre- pre- the only superpower in the world. And we overthrew <laughs> them because we had a noble cause of freedom. And then we also had a thing called the Kentucky Long Rifle. OK. And what people don't realize is that in, the, in our militia, our firearms were better than the world's greatest military Interesting. The Kentucky Long Rifle was far more
0: accurate. OK. And so we actually had better firearms in our civilians. And then. So you're saying our civilians had better firearms than the British military, the yeah. premier world power yep. in 17. 17- God, God bless America. God bless America. <laughs> <laughs> Continue. Yeah, the Kentucky long rifle, and whereas the British had
1: muskets, um, and they were just more accurate, and that's what I don't think people understand these days when they're deal like, well, AR-15s are weapons grade, and and this and that. And we don't need to have street. We don't have need to have weapons of war for sure on our streets. I, I don't think you understand is that our freedom was fought through a professional military born out of a militia, and a militia. Because they had to stand up a military from scratch real quick. Mm-hmm. And and we had the idea of freedom. Now, I, I will go so far as to say is there's, I, I say there's four different American revolutions. And and what it is, is the, there was the American Revolution, then there was the War of 1812, which is our, this, they actually called it the Second American Revolution, uh, or Second War of Independence. And mm-hmm. then you had the Civil War. Yep. Because the Civil War was all fought on slavery, and we we're still fighting for freedom. Mm-hmm. Now we had to fight amongst ourselves for freedom for all of the slaves. And then we had the civil rights uh, movement going on in the, f- the 50s and the 60s. And that's st- we're still dealing with that today. And that, even though that wasn't an all-, all right war, there was a lot of conflict involved. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's just the freedom is worth fighting for. And we have not stopped fighting for freedom. You know, and it doesn't matter who the enemy of freedom is. If the if you're an, uh, an enemy of freedom, then you're an enemy of the United States. For sure. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it takes us a little while to get to you, but uh, sometimes you have to take a number.
3: Yeah, we're persistent.
1: (laughs) Yeah, persistent. Mm -hmm. And what what people are saying, I don't think people understand is if I have the means to protect my house, then I can band together with my, my neighbors and I can protect my community. Mm-hmm. And there's also the other, and then so we can we can form sheriff's posse posse's. We can form a state militia, mm-hmm. Michigan Emergency Volunteers, or the Michigan Defense Force. And the states, if they want to have a much better militia, they can do that. Other states do that. Ours is kind of small, but that's all right. And then you have the the Michigan National Guard, and you have the the standing army, um, and then. Um, Frederick Bastiat, he's a, a French philosopher, mm-hmm. and he went and he studied before the French Revolution, and he studied the American Constitution, how we did things back then. And what he realized is what the American Constitution says is that the government does not have a power that the people don't. Mm. That's the core of the Second Amendment. So if the, if the United States military can exist, that's because a United States citizen can arm himself. Mm. Correct. You can't have a community, can't have a police force unless the citizen can arm himself. You can't have laws in a community unless a man can establish or, or the, you know, the parents can establish rules in their own household. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: So the, the every power that you find in government is found at, at home. And if you take away that right, then you have you have tyranny. It may be benevolent tyranny, but it's tyranny, tyranny nonetheless. Correct.
0: Now, what would you say to um, states like New York and California and Massachusetts who have, for lack of a better term, infringed on those rights substantially? How 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 does that come to pass?
1: (laughs) Um, You still had the Boston bombing, right? Yep. So if, if you take, you have gun, if gun violence is a problem and you take away guns, what do you have? Well, you have violence. Yeah. So, you know, ask any doctor if you want to, if you want to get rid of the illness, you have to, you don't treat the symptoms, you treat the illness. correct. Mm. And, you know, without sounding too hippie-ish, but I really don't care what people think. <laughs> um, <laughs> love. Love is the answer. And you gettling along with people you don't agree with is a big thing. For sure. And there's, you know, there's no real simple answer. But the thing is with gun control is you're only affecting the people who are law-abiding.
0: Correct. Mm-hmm.
1: You, I mean, if if gun control would work, then... Outlawing murder would also work, <laughs>
0: right? Apparently, Mur- that murder's just... <laughs> been illegal for a long time. Yeah. Actually,
3: yeah. it's funny you say that because the first time that I heard that phrasing that uh, that gun control only benefits criminals or, or people that aren't abiding by mm-hmm. laws was a student who was a was on campus during a school shooting. Like for that for that kid, he I mean he was in in high school for a 17 year old to, Mm -hmm. to understand that at that age, it's amazing how some people don't just like haven't put two and two together yet.
1: Yeah. And well, it's, it's our culture in general. And there's a lot of people in the pro gun pro second amendment movement. that are just the same is, Mm. you know, oftentimes they'll say, well, um, I don't like socialism. We should outlaw socialism or the people say we need to outright uh, outlaw Sharia law. Um, Why don't we just go and, deal with the Muslims on an individual basis and find out is, is Sharia law a a real threat as, as some people think it is, or is it not? What is it? And you know what? Maybe if we incorporate them into our culture, they're going to find out our culture is really cool mm-hmm. and they might not need Sharia law.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there, you don't just, don't just look to government. to to be your answer. And there's people on the left and right to do
0: that. Mm -hmm. The scariest words that anybody has ever uttered is I'm, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Oh man. So you hit on something really interesting right there. And um, this was actually in my, in one of the next question I was going to ask is you told me a really interesting story. I want to see if you remember it, a really interesting story about some of the first gun control laws back in the early 1900s. And, what were those laws? At who at who implemented them and why did they implement them?
1: Okay, so maybe a lot of your listeners are local here around the Grand Rapids area. Have you heard of Gun Lake? Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: Where did it get its name from? I think I actually know this one. What uh, Didn't they like? try and basically gather up all the guns and throw them at the bottom of the lake? They gathered up all the guns from the Indians,
0: mm.
1: Native Americans, and threw them in the lake. Interesting. Mm. So, and... Gun control laws up until the 1934 uh, National Firearms Act, all of them were racist. Keep the guns out of the, out of the hands of the Neanderthal black people, keep the hands out of the noble savages of the Indians, and we can hmm. rule them and tell them whatever we want. And then you get things like Roseville uh, and Rosewood in Missouri, mm-hmm. where a couple of uh, uh, white guys got all. This girl got pregnant from her white boyfriend and she didn't want to own up to it. So she said she got raped by a black guy. And then a bunch of the, the racist uh, white men all got whipped up in a frenzy and went and rampaged an entire city.
0: Mm-hmm. And Was and, that the, what, there was a name for that, wasn't there? Rosewood. Rosewood. R- I think it was Rosewood. The Rosewood they made a movie about or something it and everything. like that, yeah.
1: And, and they raised an entire city and killed dozens of, or scores of, of black people that just couldn't defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> not the only instance that happened. That's not even the most horrendous thing that's happened. Wounded Knee is another
0: example. Hmm. What is Wounded Knee?
1: Wounded Knee is where uh, the U.S. Army came in and they were supposed to displace a bunch of Indians, but they ended up massacring them. Mm. Okay. So, and they were, they were disarmed. In fact, that, I think that's one of the reasons they were there is to disarm them. Interesting. And then uh, here in 2006, we used to have these things called gun boards in the state of Michigan. And the gun board was, it was the county prosecutor. I think it was the county clerk and it was the sheriff. And those guys would get together and they would review all the concealed pistol license applications. And they would decide who would get them and who would not get them but back before we had the shall issue law. It was May issue. And mm-hmm. you would have had to petition the government to say, hey, I'm I'm in fear of my life. And that seems kind of foolish now. Mm-hmm. Why do I have to petition the government right. to defend myself? Mm-hmm. So,
0: There are several states that are still May issue, though. Yes. Um, yep. New York being one of them. Um, but well,
1: yeah. Let's, let's go back to that in a minute. But yep. I want to finish this with yes. the gun boards. Do. And, and do you know why those, that, that law came up? Why? It was a specific instance in the the Detroit area where a black man was a dentist and got enough money. He wanted to live in a nice neighborhood. So he went and bought a house in a nice neighborhood. And, you know, with a black person moving in, it lowered property value and upset a lot of people. And that caused a mob to form up. And that mob, they had a police officer in that mob. And that mob got a little unruly and there was a firearm that was discharged. And there's no idea who caused that. But if I remember specifically, that police officer had to requisition, requisition six cartridges for his police issue revolver the next day. Interesting. So,
0: yeah. So but, what year was this? It was in the 1930s. 19, okay. So this, believe, but this is okay. in the
1: state. And so what, what the gun control law did was, is what the KKK did was, well, we don't want black people to own guns.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. Um, and so what they did was they made a state law... But they didn't have the control at the state government. What they did have is a majority of the county governments. Mm. So if they made a state law that the counties could decide who get guns, then we can keep guns out of the hands of black people. And for that sure. was the only reason why that, gun, why that law was in place. Interesting. Mm. And then you, you look flash forward today. Now you're like, the NRA is a bunch of white supremacists. They're not a bunch of white supremacists. Back in the 1960s and the 1930s, the NRA was for those national gun control laws.
0: The NRA, if I if I remember correctly, it was a it, today it's it's much they're much more on the legal side and politically advocating and stuff like that it, from from the public perspective anyway.
1: The, what you're talking of is the NRA is an institute of legislative action, correct? The NRA is primarily an, an education system, and yes. I'm an instructor through them.
0: Yeah, they do a lot of education. I think there's a lot of misconception, yeah. out there about that because the, the NRA was specifically in the or in the nineteen hundreds, mm-hmm. an, an educational system. It if was you will.
1: educational, and they came out right after uh, Civil War, and so they do claim to be America's oldest civil rights organization, and they did. They they did start organ, uh, based on civil rights, and a yeah. right to own firearms is a civil right. But they didn't get in the, involved in the legislative stuff until after the NAACP and after the National uh, Association of Blind, which truly is the oldest civil rights organization. Um, but at the same time at the 1968 law, and then there was a famous law in California in which uh, it... it In California, Ronald Reagan was the governor at the time, and Ronald Reagan and the NRA both sided with law enforcement at the time. Um, And I I acknowledge that NRA being a national organization back then, there were a few racists in the NRA back then. In fact, there were people who believed not everybody should own a firearm in the the NRA. And that's why they were able to pass the 1968 National Firearms Act or, or the Gun Control Act and the National Firearms Act in 1934. And then California... They backed the police, and then the police had, "Hey, you know what? we don't want people ob- uh, open carrying in low income neighborhoods." and what that addressed specifically was in Oakland County or in the city of Oakland, the new black the, the Black Panther, not the new Black Panther, mm-hmm. but the original Black Panther groups is that, you know what? the police is being brutal, and we need to defend ourselves yep. And not only did they defend themselves against police brutality, which apparently was a thing, at least to them it was, is they started patrolling their neighborhood with guns, but they were also patrolling the neighborhood with guns to keep the crime down so that the police wouldn't have an excuse Mm -hmm. to come in. Interesting. They were being anti-tyrannical. And so that is the reason the Black Panther, the original Black Panther Party, is the exact reason why we have the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. The government was being out out of control. Yeah. And... I think the governor Reagan and the NRA were wrong. And then after the 1968 gun control act, there was a a revolution in the NRA Mm -hmm. and they kicked them out. They, all these guys were pro guns. No, don't be a part of them anymore. And that's when we got, uh, a new leadership in there, and we started going around. And one of the things we did eventually is we got Charlton Heston as a president. Who is Charlton he Heston?
0: The, what's what's his background? Who is Charlton Heston? I'm yes. going to slap you. I know, I know who he, I okay. know who he is. But all right, there you go. Tell all my right. listeners who may so not know.
1: He was in modern America. We always see him as he was the face of the NRA for years. Great man, but when he became the NRA, that was well after his movie career. In the 1950s, his movie career, he got the best actor for Ben-Hur, and he was a very big, and that was when he was at the height of his popularity. He wasn't known for being socially active for guns. Mm-hmm. What he was being known for was he was marching with Martin Luther King, Jesse Jackson, Harry Belafonte, Malcolm X. He was photographed with them, and he was using the height of his popularity for civil rights. Interesting. Interesting and that's what he was known for and they were known for that and mm-hmm. at the same time believe it or not there are some uh, outright marxists and socialists that were for black power mm-hmm. And the NRA was giving them endorsements to have gun clubs. And that's what the, the term John Brown gun clubs came from. And because parts of the NRA realized, hey, you need to defend yourselves mm-hmm. against these raging white supremacists. And so then there was a war going on in the 60s and a large part of the, the NRA wanted to support these black people. Yeah. And they eventually booted those guys out and they went and they, went and they got Charlton Heston and they, they want black people to be able to defend themselves because the police can't always be there.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's that. Wow. That covered like two thirds (laughs) of my fourth section right there. That's awesome. I'm getting a history lesson. (laughs) Yeah, This This is is great. So um, let me ask you this. I'll, I'll segue to this. Are there any in your opinion, are there any good gun control, gun control laws in place? Or is any restriction an infringement on our rights?
1: <laughs> this is where I'm going to disagree with a lot of people, especially in the militia. Okay. Okay. So a militia being necessary to the security of the free state, a well-regulated or a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of this free state, that sets up a need for a militia. The second clause is the right to the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So... If you read Federalist Papers, number 45, the founding fathers, especially uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison specifically said, is that the federal government is going to be the most hands off. There's going to be more restrictions on your freedoms at the state and local level. People Mm -hmm. don't realize that. They forget that we have a state constitution. Yep. Um, But our right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Yes. Um, But as a military man. Yeah, so if you guys ever go see the movie Black Hawk Down, that's awesome because these guys, these actors, are using their firearms correctly to the point where we usually that movie as a training video for the military. Wow! And all those guys with rifles, you think they're firing on full auto? No, Mm-mm. aimed shots. Mm-hmm. They use machine guns to keep to suppress the enemy and to fire and maneuver. Yes, but the rifles, aimed shots. Yep. We have the capability of using burst fire, or even now we have full auto on our on our semi on our rifles. Mm-hmm. We don't use them, right? Because there's really no point in using them, and so it's just, just spray aimed and pray. For it's spray not, and pray yeah. does not work for the U.S. military. No. And one of the reasons why it doesn't work is when we went in Desert Storm or not just Desert Storm, but Iraqi Freedom One is we went up against the army that did their whole marksmanship program was spray and pray. And then they realized this, that we were moving into incoming fire and we were taking aimed fire and we weren't just spraying and praying. And they they actually they've never seen that before. And that's why they dropped their weapons and it was surrender because mm-hmm. they never seen anybody advance in the face of fire before. Yeah. Well, we knew how to handle it. We knew how to, if you're going to spray and pray, you're not hitting me. I know yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I've been on the receiving end of uh, spraying pray a number of times and I mean, tell you, it just doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. But when you have aim fire coming up there, so, you know, fully automatic machine gun, There's a, um, it just doesn't work very well. And if you want to have a well-regulated militia and functioning well, then- Honestly, if I don't want the government to ban those fully automatic machine guns. However, um, if you're going to waste a lot of ammunition, a lot of money, and your resources on just blowing ammo full auto, then you're pretty stupid, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a very negative effect on a militia effect because you're not going to get the training; you're just going to waste your money for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, average person plus there's the marksmanship fundamentals get destroyed when you're when you're doing that. um, when you go hunting, I go high hunt in public land now because I lost my private land access and there's a five round limit. And I am very thankful that there's a five round limit because there's a lot of people who mag dump mm. thinking that's an effective form of marksmanship when you're hunting. That's, <laughs> no, that's stupid. No, you. No. No, there's, there's lots of laws out there crazy people that are violent. They should not own firearms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So right now we have laws that prevent them from, f- from actually purchasing the firearms. Um, but once if you're sane and you own a firearm and then your mind deteriorates, what legal right do we have to come and make sure that people are safe? Yeah, that's something we've got to take a look at. Mm-hmm. OK, but we've got to take a look at it with a mind that the government should not be taking them
0: for sure. Well, it's really interesting. So preparing for this interview, um, one of the problems that I ran into preparing this interview mm-hmm. is you and I are very much on the same page in a lot of this stuff. So I actually shot messages out to a bunch of my liberal friends and was like, Hey, if you were interviewing somebody uh, or if, what are, mm-hmm. what are some questions you have about gun control or what, like, do you think it's good? Do you think it's bad? Um, what's somebody, what are, what are questions that you would ask somebody, um, who is a, a firearms instructor? Somebody who's very knowledgeable about them. Mm-hmm. And I got a really good question from Carlos hi carlos hey carlos what's up man uh shout out to carlos here so he, what basically he cited the case of um the 56 year old uh i believe he was from the up but he was uh charged he was arrested and charged with poaching 18 wolves and a bunch of bald eagles i'm ah, sure you're familiar with that yeah so at some point he was probably a responsible gun or, owner um i I don't know, but at some point he probably was, he was, he probably purchased those guns legally is, and this is the golden question that we all have, but how do you stop some, some, somebody from doing something bad before they do something bad? You know, how do you, how do you kind of address that?
1: How do you stop a person from speeding on the highway? You don't. Right. Everybody has a capability of doing good and doing bad. Mm -hmm. So. It's up to me, uh, up to you, and us to be the best citizens or best people we can be. And generally, humans are better at being good than they are at being bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But it's when somebody displays a behavior that makes them a dangerous to society,
0: we've got to be able to take corrective action. Intervene, yeah.
1: In- in- intervene. Um, and you mean,
0: and and if I'm reading you correctly, you mean more that we, the people, not necessarily the government, because that can get messy.
1: I'm a big advocate of dealing with a problem at the lowest level possible. Sure. Mm -hmm. So if you have a guy that that is either bipolar, then I think it behooves the family to say, hey, why don't you give us your guns and then you can come over and use them anytime you want to. We Mm -hmm. can go shoot. Uh, but and if they can do that, that's great. The mm-hmm. problem is, is that when people start getting to that, that, that problem stage, then it, it's a problem stage. Just like yeah. that's why we call it a problem stage. For sure. <laughs> so sometimes you have to get more other people involved.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I, a story that I heard um, a couple but, of years. Uh, I want to
1: say the whole reason why that got caught, that guy got caught because he was trying to make money off of that stuff. Oh, he was selling it to stuff. And then, 18 wolves. Now, first off, wolves are a definite problem. My brother yeah, just bought a farm. For sure. He just brought a farm up in Calumet, Michigan, and they have film, they have a, a film of a wolf on their property.
0: I was actually about to say, you can make a really good argument that wolves should be delisted. Um, yeah. And you can, I mean, if you're shooting bald eagles, you're just an asshole. Like there's, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's no other way. Like there, there's just no reason to do that. But like I, the wolf thing. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. You're shooting there. shooting bald eagle. Um, then you're an enemy of freedom
1: yeah. sorry
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're just a freaking commie <laughs> <laughs> oh man so um another question from carlos do you think as as an instructor do you as an instructor think gun owners should be watched more often with their mental health or how they use their guns no the reason why is um if if i want to
1: if i want to kill you i'm going to find a way to kill you Mm-hmm. And having a gun is um, okay. So a if gun. I want to, a gun's a tool. A gun is a tool. Yes. Now it does make it easier. Yeah, but you know what? A car is a very effective weapon too. A gallon of gasoline on a house—that's a good, a good tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's just. No, they shouldn't be because and in the other, you have to look at the law of unintended consequences. If you're going to start watching somebody more closely than the other, then they're going to get more paranoid and you're going to lose the trust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's going to alienate them and then it's going to create more problems. Mm-hmm. You want, you want these, all the gun loaners to be. They want to be a part of society just like everybody else does. And that's why most of us don't necessarily agree with... We want to have the right to open carry, but most of us don't because... For sure. We understand that a lot of people, it'll make people uncomfortable, and we don't want them to be uncomfortable. Yep, We would prefer them to be comfortable around open carry, but until they are you know I'm leave that for somebody else to fight that crusade for
0: mm-hmm. sure yeah and and my thing is it's it's a for me it's a courtesy thing and a, a level of comfortability thing for me personally yeah because I, I won't open carry in Grand Rapids like yeah. in the, in this in if I go into a mire or something I'm not open carrying my pistol however if I'm in northern Michigan that's a whole different story mm-hmm. like well, I'll, I have support Michigan open carry the organization mm-hmm. and they're great and
1: they're very good at fighting that cause yes um, and I would Will open carry when I'm doing a lot of yard work sure. or when mm-hmm. I'm around the house and when I want to run to the gas station after cutting wood yep. out in the woods. I have a detachable holster, and my gas station, they don't mind if I open carry. Yep. That's great. That's cool. And and I can do that, but I don't want to make one of their other customers that are just passing through feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So that's just something that I do. If you want to carry open carry and you're doing it responsibly, hey, hats off to you. It's yeah. awesome.
3: Mm-hmm. I was like the other day, I don't, actually, this was, I think this was back in uh, like May or June. So riots were kind of going on. So the times made a little bit more sense, but I saw someone, I saw a guy open carrying in East Grand Rapids and I was like, oh, wow, that's like not something you see every day. yeah yeah all right one last question
0: and then we're we're gonna wrap this up with my last segment here so my the last question is is and this is this is actually a question that came from me um i wanted to see what your thoughts are on this so um it You know, a lot of people, I mean, you can look at the numbers. People Mm -hmm. are buying guns left and right. You walk into Dunham's or a sporting goods store and (sighs) you, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're not keeping them on the shelves. I'll say that. So they're flying. So, which means that, uh, I will assume that there are a lot of new first time gun owners. Um, so in my particular case, I bought a gun. We, I now have a a firearm in my, in my residence for the first time. I have a five-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you, what does that conversation look like? Because you have to have that conversation with your kid in case, you know, you do your best, you you know, I have a very strong stringent method of how to keep my firearm safe <laughs> in my house
1: and not everybody has that one they just had one yes. in elegant county where a six-year-old was
0: shot yeah hmm. and, and and that's terrible and we're, and we're all human we're all yeah. going to make mistakes and you have to mitigate that obviously yep so another a thing you can do to mitigate risk is have that conversation with your kids what does that conversation sound like it can't be just a conversation it's got to be part
1: of your lifestyle it's got to train you've got to spend some time with your kid and get them involved with um does your child know the difference between a toy gun and a real gun you come into my house when my kids were young and they're still pretty young 12 10 and 9 and they don't use their toy guns to shoot at each other Mm -hmm. they shoot monsters bad guys and space aliens and then when their friends come over, they'll play Nerf War, Gun Wars, and Half-Squirt Gun Wars and stuff. But then when they leave, it goes right back to don't point your firearm, don't point your guns at anybody else. Because they treat them just like firearms. Mm-hmm. And then if if I happen to, on a rare occasion, uh, leave my firearm in a holster, um, which it's happened once. It just happened where I went to the bathroom and I I, I I'm penix carry, so I set it up on the counter mm-hmm. while I'm going to the bathroom. And then I walked out. And then but sometimes I will purposefully leave a lo- unloaded firearm that looks loaded in the house just to see what the kids will do. Okay. And what you want to do is you want you want them to feel number one comfortable around the firearm, mm-hmm. but two, know what to do. And my kids have been shooting since they were each could ho- actually hold a firearm right around 3. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, but you know, there are maturity levels different. So as you know, I go hunting with my 12 year old and he can, he can hold a firearm. NRA has a wonderful program called Eddie the Eagle and it teaches kids what to do is, well, get dad's firearm is right there. Dad, your firearm is right there. And if nobody's there to tell, then I know how to shut the door and tell other people that there's the gun right there. Mm -hmm. And then my older kids actually can work a firearm. They know how to unload it.
0: Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, I'll have to check that that resource out, Eddie the Firearm, um, for or Eddie, can, Eddie the... Go ahead.
1: Uh, so I want to touch on one more thing about my idea of gun control. Yeah, sure. So, bump stocks. Okay. I absolutely hate bump stocks. They're horrible. They're a novelty item. They're not a firearm. They're a firearm accessory. Mm-hmm. And I'm absolutely against banning them. Okay. Even though I hate them. Why? Because after the Las Vegas shooting, if if nobody ever threatened... To ban them, they ought to would have gone out of business because it 's a novelty item it, you know people buy them and they're they 're kind of fun the first time, but mm-hmm. then you realize how fast you burn through all your money yeah, and no no problem if you would have just would have let the thing die, then the free market takes control the gum the companies would have gone out of business. Nobody would produce them
0: anymore. I had no idea what a bump stock was until yeah. until that Vegas incident. I,
3: I, they suck. I only found out about that because after the Las Vegas shooting, Jerry Michelek on his YouTube channel yeah. did, a, did a video where he, he shot a bump stock and then he shot faster than a bump stock manually <laughs> just because he's Jerry Michelek and he can do <laughs> that.
1: Yeah, he can do that. But the other thing is in order for a f- uh, bump stock to work, you have to violate the fundamentals of marksmanship. You have to be inherently inaccurate. So if full automatic fire is inaccurate enough to where it can be a danger, and it can be, mm-hmm. then a bump stock is even worse than that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, hey, I got a bump stock because it's a whole lot of fun. Hey, cool. Guess what? You just bought a waste of money. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I'm sorry, but you're every time you use a bump stock, you, you're training yourself to be a poor shot.
0: I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to listen in. If you're still here, you're one of the greatest humans on the face of the planet. If you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. All reviews on Apple Podcasts are greatly appreciated. For clips, updates, and other exclusive content, follow on all social platforms at RakowskiPod.